Scripture reading today will be Exodus 3, 7 through 17. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're going to uh, continue to study Exodus this morning. We're going to be back in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, keep your Bibles open to that chapter. We're going to spend most of the time in chapter 3. There'll be some other places that we may skip to and from uh, during uh, our study this morning. Uh, also get out that uh, announcement sheet, and inside of it you'll find there's, uh, there's a, a sermon outline that you can use and there's some places for you to jot some notes down at the bottom. Uh, not all of our small groups are going to be meeting tonight. Uh, uh, some are, most are not. But if your group is meeting, those three questions that you find down at the bottom are going to form the, the basis of your discussion as you look tonight uh, and continue to think and to study and apply the, the text, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, to your life. I want to say hello to everybody that's streaming with us. We know a lot of people are out traveling right now. And uh, it's the end of spring break, and our prayer is that uh, you will arrive back safely in San Antonio. And if you're uh, uh, 
traveling back to some other place, uh, we're going to pray that, that you arrive there safely as well. And we're going to do that now as we ask God to bless us in our study. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the words of that last hymn that we sang to you in worship and in glorifying your name be the truth of this next few minutes. And that is, at the end of our study, we will more than anything else want to put you in that highest place. And to that end, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear in order for that to happen. Thank you for this text. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said, Amen. You know the name Martin Luther, very famous name, very important figure in, in history. Uh, the 95 Thesis that he, uh, he pinned to the door of Wittenberg, that great cathedral, started the Reformation. But it wasn't his alone. There were other people during that time that, uh, that, that played uh, a huge part in that Reformation. And, and there were times that, uh, that Martin Luther would kind of stand out, and there were other times that these other folks would. One in particular was a very good friend of Luther. His name was Philip Melanchthon. And he was uh, an important figure in the Reformation, and he was a part of that time in which it was very dangerous for the reformers. They would go uh, to certain places and their life would be in danger. And, and there were times when Philip Melanchthon, who, who was, a, was a much kinder and a gentler type of individual than Luther, would sort of succumb to some of the, some of the negativity around him and around what was happening in the Reformation. And he would slip into despondency, he would slip into a blue funk from time to time, and he would catch himself and he would remind himself that, that, uh, that his was a part to play and that he was, not, he was not the ruler of the world. In fact, he used those words. He used to, to remind himself with these words, let Philip cease to rule the world. And he would remind himself of where he stood in light of everything that God was doing in the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. How many times have you had to say that to yourself? Attempting to rule the world, or at least our little part of the world, our little piece of the world, is at the heart of a lot of human anxiety. Trying to rule the world, at least our little piece of it. Back in 1997 was a, a very famous movie uh, entitled Titanic. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays this fellow by the name of Jack Dawson who gets on the boat. He's heading back to America. He's an impoverished individual. He cannot be in the, uh, the, the more affluent areas of the boat. And there's this one scene. In fact, it's an iconic scene in the movie where Jack Dawson, one of his friends, he goes to the furthermost point, uh, forward point of the boat, spreads his hands out, wind in his hair, and he says what? I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of the world. Not knowing that they were heading toward a collision with an iceberg. Life, our life, is, is full of icebergs. I, I don't want to sound morose, but one of the really big lessons in life that can be hard is that life is hard. And that life at times is not very fair. There are icebergs of varying size. And part of the lessons of life is learning how to navigate through that. And the key, though, especially for those of us who are disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, is that the key for navigating through those icebergs is not dependent on a personal skill set primarily, but primarily dependence on a God who has revealed himself to us. 
Here's where we are in the story of Moses and the Exodus. We'll pick up from where we were last week. And part of the the greatness of a book like Exodus is just telling the story and making ourselves familiar with the events and the people of the story in order to ponder them and to think about them and to learn from them. So beginning in chapter 3, you know that Moses is now a settled resident in the land of Midian. He is married. He has children. And he he has a secure job. He is working for his, his uh, father-in-law, Jethro. There is one of the commentators, uh, one of the, the, the really uh, commentaries I'm really enjoying in this study, one by J.A. Moyer, who reminds us that the grammar of verse 1 conveys the idea of a long, monotonous continuity. In fact, the word still, S-T-I-L-L, could justifiably and arguably be inserted into that text of verse 1. Moses is still shepherding and still shepherding and still shepherding and still shepherding the sheep. Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's speech, we know that it's 40 years that he is just watching the sheep. And one day he moves the flocks deeper into the wilderness and he sees something that catches his eye. He sees itself sustaining fire that is in the bush on the side of the mountain of God and the bush is not consumed he says it's a marvelous sight I'm going to turn aside I'm going to go and look at it so curious he goes to investigate and it's there that he has the encounter with God and the fire that is in the bush that is not consumed and as he approaches it there's a voice the voice of God that comes out of the bush that says come no closer come no closer and take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Moses loses the curiosity and is overcome by the awesomeness. He is stunned by the awesomeness of what is happening. And he buries his his face. He hides his face because he's fearful. He's fearful to look upon God. And what's happening is that Moses, Moses believes in God. But Moses is getting a brand new definition of holiness. And as we saw last week, that holiness of God is terrifying. But it also fascinates. That holiness of God is lethal, but it's lovely. And he's attracted, and he's terrified, and he's fascinated, but it's also a fire, a holiness that also reveals. And God says in verse 7 that Alfred just read for us, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I emphasize a couple of words there because I don't want you to miss the elegant, a little piece of of elegant writing in this verse. Where Moses says, is recounting all of this and writing it down for us, where he says, uh, God is going to come down in order to bring up. And God ends that speech with these words. He says to Moses, so now you, Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And quite frankly, that is the most ridiculous thing that Moses has heard in a really long time. Think about it. Moses has lived 
99% of his life apart from the Hebrews. He now has the smell of sheep in his hair and in his clothing, which doesn't qualify him for any level of greatness. He is no longer a spring chicken. He's 80 years of age. And Moses is now resigned to life under the radar in the wilderness. And in this moment, Moses is, with his face fearfully buried in his hands or, or in the sand, and he's before this God who has dressed himself in flames. He is being told to do the very thing that he failed to do. And he didn't just fail, he failed miserably. Sometimes when you and I fail, we just go on with life. He failed to the degree that he had to flee for his life 40 years earlier. And so he asked this very, I think, smart and pertinent question. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, think for a moment. It's tomorrow at your workplace or at school. What do you say when somebody approaches you with their inadequacies and some of their self-doubt? What do you say to them? Well, a lot of times you go, no, 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 you're great. You're absolutely amazing. I wish you saw you through my eyes. No, 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 don't say that. You're great. Don't say that at all. Don't be a defeatist. I mean, with that kind of attitude, you're going to fail. And so we try to pick them up and uh, prep them up a little bit. God doesn't do that. God does not say that because God knows that Moses is absolutely right. God knows that humans are, in fact, inadequate. And so he says the one right thing. I'll be with you. I will be with you. And the sign that I am with you is that sometime in the near distant future, you're going to see the sons of Israel worshiping me in this very place, on this very mountain. Now Moses is a pretty smart fellow. And just because somebody says they're going to be with you, do you have the goods? Do you have the power? Do you have the ability to follow that up? So he asks a question, which is essentially, who are you? These people are going to ask. Now, uh, I tell you what I, I think about all of this, at least today. The people of Israel back in Egypt have an idea about the name of God. Pharaoh doesn't know it, but the sons of Israel have an idea. I mean, if they do not know, what good is it for Moses telling them the name of God? I mean, he could say, to the, as an answer to the question, what's his name? He could say, God's name is Joe Schmo from Kokomo. And they could say, that sounds pretty good to us. Let's go. No, they have an idea. And believe it or not, Eve, the Eve in the Adam and Eve, Eve is actually the first person in the Bible to use the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh. In chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1, she said, with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man. A couple of verses later, about 25 verses later, and talking about that son, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, which in Hebrew is Yahweh. 
So Moses is asking, they're going to ask, what's, what's your name? And God gives Moses an answer in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, or excuse me, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And, and in this short passage, uh, first 17 verses of a chapter, there are at least three important things that we as disciples of Jesus, I think, should know from this chapter. It's a blessing there is a greater blessing and then the greatest blessing. So we, we begin with that first thing in this text. The first blessing in our text looks like this. It's up on the screen. You can write it down. When we are weak, then we are what? Let's say it together. When we are weak, then we are strong. Let's use our out, outdoor voices, not our golf voices. When we are weak, then we are strong. Remember this from the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Some kind of pain, some kind of agony that he has in his life. Three times I prayed to the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, among icebergs. For when I am weak, say it with me, then I am strong. From one angle, Moses' life, getting back to Exodus 3, Moses' life looks like it's at a dead end. At one point in the early points of his life, he had influence, he had power, he had affluence, he had a name, he had opportunities, he was connected. And then he takes that opportunity a little bit too far and he ends up killing a man. And over 40 years, there in that wilderness of Midian, out there in that wilderness, the Moses wanted dead or alive posters have turned into a silver alert. He's disappeared off the map. He's 80 years old. And he's dispossessed of all of those, those, those assets that he had at the beginning of his life. And when we meet him again in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, the text says that he's pastoring sheep, and he's pastoring sheep, and he's pastoring sheep. And at last notice, he is still pastoring sheep. And his life seems that somebody has put himself, has pushed the pause button, and his life is not on play. But here's the thing. God is, is not looking for Superman. God's not even looking for a self-made man, but he's looking for a shepherd. God is looking for a shepherd who will shepherd his people Israel, the psalmists. Jedithan and Asaph collaborated one day on a psalm, Psalm 77. And in verse 20, they write these words, You, God, led your people like a flock. 
by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What Moses did not realize is that he's learning to be faithful in everyday life. We think that that's, 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 that's drudgery today. But learning to be faithful in everyday, ordinary life is also learning. Working in obedience and trustworthiness. Moses is learning the lessons of being a shepherd to lots and lots and lots of sheep over lots and lots of years. And now God appears out of nowhere in his burning bush on the side of a mountain. And he says to Moses, the time has come for you to deliver the sons of Israel from their slavery and from their oppressed and bitter life. You are now ready. Not, are you ready? But he says, you're now ready. And Moses says, you've got the wrong guy. I'm just a lowly shepherd. And God says, no, you're the guy. Only this time I'm going to be with you. And one day, not too far down the road, you will see my flock Israel in the very place where you stand barefoot. And it's here that you will see my flock in place of yours. One of the hardest lessons, I think, for disciples of Jesus to learn is this one. John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul gets it. He writes to a really hard place of ministry at Corinth. Probably right around his third or fourth letter, he writes to them, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from where? From God. Forty years earlier, Moses had more than just this general issue with pride. We tend to look at what happened there in Egypt at the sand and all of that and say, well, he had a pride issue. Well, he did. But more than that, most of us operate in a default mode where when we come up against something that we want to do, the default mode is, what can I do to get this done? What can I do to get this accomplished? What's the plan? What are the goals? How do I achieve this? Where are the resources? Becoming meek is more than just bringing our strength and our our assets into submission and learning to control that strength. It's more than that. It means to be meek in the kingdom of God means to bring our power under submission in order for a greater power to be at work in our lives. And it's here that that greater power is introduced, the knowledge of God is better than knowledge about God. I, I know a lot about this fellow that goes by the name Troy Aikman. I know he's from Henrietta, Oklahoma, and beyond that, I know how to spell it. With a Y and not an I. Played quarterback at University of Oklahoma. Transferred to UCLA. First overall pick, 1989 by the Cowboys. First overall pick. Becomes number eight, and he wins three Super Bowls. About a year ago, Ellen and I are up in the Dallas area uh, for the weekend. We're performing a wedding for uh, dear friends. And we decided that uh, we wanted to take a walk in the Highland Park Village where the wedding was in that area. So we're walking through Highland Park Village. We turn the corner, and there is Troy Aikman. All eight foot ten of him. (laughs) And he's being seated. Troy Aikman eats Mexican food. 
He's being seated at an outdoor table at this veranda thing, at this outdoor restaurant, and he's being seated at a Mexican restaurant. And you know what I do? I'm afraid of no man. So as Ellen and I are going by, I can't believe she didn't see him. I mean, it's Troy Aikman. And I walk by and go, hey, Troy, and keep on going. He looks up, he smiles, and he gives me, he's like, who in the world are you? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, that's a true story, by the way. All my stories are true, but that one's a really true one. Some are more true than others. <laughs> I mean, if you can't embellish. But that one happened the way I told it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27 is one of the most stunning verses in, in, for me in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about all those people of faith that become an example to the people he's writing to. And he gets to Moses and he, and he says, by faith he left Egypt. And he didn't fear the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Do you know how well you have to know someone to say that? I can see Ellen, even when she's not there. I see the crow's feet and the way her hair curls around her ear. That eyes and that nose that I like to look at, even when she's not there, I can see her, even though she's invisible. But for the life of me, I cannot remember what my first grade teacher, Mrs. Eldridge, looked like. It seems to me she was tall. When you know somebody, you see them even when they're invisible. Have, have you ever wondered why God showed up to Moses in a burning bush? I mean, he could have shown up as a man with some friends like he did to Abraham. could have shown up in a dream like he did to Jacob. But to Moses, he shows up with a robe of flames. He's robed in fire. He shows up in the burning bush because Moses needed more than information about God. That he had to some extent. He needed more than info about God. What he needed was an experience of God. And that's the fire. Think about fire. You're out there in the middle of nowhere and you build a fire and it engages all of your senses. You can hear the crackle of it. You feel the heat. You can smell. You can taste the smoke. With your very eyes, you see the flames. Moses, to some degree, knows about a God, but he's never met him like this. Not in the way that Paul would describe it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says, God alone lives in un approachable light and then God tries to help Moses understand his name in verses 14 and 15 with a lot of redundancy and alliteration he says Ege Asher Ege Ege Yahweh I am who I am but it's an imperfect tense which means it could mean some other things it could mean I will be who I will be at least that's the way that Robert Alter translates it now, on this name, let me say just two things and we're done. First, the name Yahweh is like a, a, a deep pool. The more that you sink deeply into that pool, theologically and philologically and etymologically, 
and the more you sink into it and marvel, it is a name that you can know God by, but it's not one that you can pin him down with. It is not a name that you can pin him down because he is God. And secondly, the burning bush is part of the answer, no, to what that name means. That for God to say, Eye, Asher, Eye, Eye, Yahweh, is to say that this is a self-sustaining, actively present, always present, ever-present, omni-competent, super-abundant, brimming with vitality and immortality, infinitely wise and forgiving and concerned and holy and a powerful God. And Moses is not perfect. He's got a lot to learn, and he'll learn a lot. But Moses, in this moment, is being converted. His trajectory, trajectory will be danger and hardship, wandering in a parched land, Ears filled with never-ending human whining. Perpetual mediation. But at the same time, a never-satisfied hunger for more and more knowledge of God. And at the end of Exodus, he just wants to see God. And in the end, God says about Moses, I speak to him face to face the way that you speak to a friend. Well, the last thing, and this is the greatest blessing, is that there will be an ultimate coming down and bringing up. God is, is telling Moses, I'm coming down because I'm concerned about Israel. I see, I feel what it is they're going through. I'm concerned. And I'm coming down not to be a spectator. I'm not coming down to witness for myself because I know I'm coming down in order to bring them up. And God does the very thing He says He's going to do. He comes down for Israel and brings them up out of their slavery. But it was foreshadowing for something that would happen many, many years down the road where God does not come down for, for, for Israel but he comes down for us. And this angel shows up. And he says, another son is going to be born. And he gives another name. You will call him Jesus because he'll save his people. But he will also be known as Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. And it's not God and a man, but God in a man who brings that exodus off, who rescues us from a greater enslavement and enslavement to sin. Luke chapter 4 says it this way, He will free those who are oppressed. And our fancy theological word for it is incarnation. But in Philippians chapter 2, it's about God coming down in the form of man. And not just a man, but a servant. And not just a servant who was obedient, but obedient to death. And not just to death, but death on a cross. So that at the end, 
of his faithfulness. God will exalt him to the highest place. Every knee will bow before him. And not only is that one, Jesus, the Messiah, raised up, but everyone who has faith in him is brought up too. We're going to have some shepherds right down here at the front. We're going to sing another song. And maybe you've been wondering about your life and wondering why it just seems like, regardless of what you do, it just seems you can't avoid those icebergs. Or at least when you hit them, it feels like you're sinking. Maybe the time is to bring all of your assets and all of your strengths into meekness in order for them to be submitted to a greater power that will come to bear in your life. And that doesn't mean you're going to have this fancy life or a great life or an easy life. And sometimes that life gets even harder. But you don't do that life successfully on your own. You do it by the power of God in you. And you do it with a clean conscience and you do it with a clear soul and you do it without guilt and you do it with the power of the Spirit and you do it in forgiveness and in love and community and you live your life. You live your life in the power of God's power. If that describes you this morning or if there's some other ways that we might minister to you, we want you to come down Talk to these shepherds about that as we stand and we praise this God who reveals himself to us. Let all that is within me cry worthy. Let all that is within me cry worthy. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Let all that is that have come forward but first my mic on yes um, we want to recognize uh, a couple uh, new to our community that want to place membership with us Wally and Liz Goaty can we get you guys to stand where are you right here welcome <laughs> family of Stephen Short we're glad that uh, we're glad that you're here uh, a couple of prayer requests that have come over the text line uh, this is from Shannon Lamford for June Welty she writes that June had an allergic reaction to something she